You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Jewish Matters podcast. And tonight, we're going to be talking about a truly exceptional Jewish personality, Hannah Senesh, the heroic poet. And Hannah's story is a heart-wrenching one and also an inspiring one. She gave her life fighting for the Jewish people, and she was an ardent Zionist, made Aliyah at a young age, and at 23 years old was martyred by the Nazis. She was also a creative poet. Her diary was later found and published, and her poems have become a source of inspiration and uh, really central to uh, Jewish Zionist youth movements and really throughout the country. And we'll see some of her poetry and uh, hear about her life. She was born in Hungary uh, before the war and her family was a typical Hungarian, somewhat assimilated but Jewishly identifying family. Her father was actually a famous writer and playwright and he passed away when she was relatively young. She went to a uh, special Protestant school, uh, a private school, and already we see uh, the impact of anti-Semitism. To go to the school, if you were Protestant, was a certain price. If you were Catholic, was double that, and if you were Jewish, it was triple. And her mother was proud that due to her academic performance, she only uh, had to pay double the usual tuition in recognition of Hannah's achievements. She was a studious child, a very uh, creative one, interested in the arts, literature, had friends, but always was considered to be on the serious and focused side. And her senior year in high school, she started to undergo changes in her Jewish identity. And at that time, in the late 1930s, a Jewish bill in Hungary was introduced after the Anschluss, the invasion of Austria. The Jews in academia were reduced to 6% of the field, Jews in commerce and industry to 12%, and Jews could no longer be members of parliament, judges, teachers, or lawyers. And so Hungarian society was changing. Now, for her, this reaction to anti-Semitism, the renewed awakening of her Jewish, it led to a renewed awakening of her Jewish identity. And she started to get involved in Zionist groups, started to read Zionist writings, Theodore Herzl, and started to focus more and more upon uh, upon her Jewish identity, and upon the dream of moving to Palestine. This was not so uncommon amongst the Jewish youth in uh, in the 1930s. My uncle described how in Salzburg, Austria, he got beat up every day in school, and that drove him to want to study with the rabbi. And his future brother, his his uncle, my great uncle, joined a Zionist youth group and would bring food and blankets to the Jewish refugees fleeing Eastern Europe in the late 30s. 
He met his future wife in one of these groups. They had plans to move to Palestine, but then the, their father passed away and they took over the family business, uh, which would be short-lived. They would escape eventually, but they also did want to, had the dream of moving to Palestine. But Hannah acted upon her dream and she applied to agricultural school in Israel, uh, what was then uh, Jewish Mandate Palestine under the British rule, and she was accepted and was all excited. She waited particularly a long time to tell her family, not knowing how they would react. Of course, her mother was a single mother, so it was particularly difficult, but she was so passionate about it, she wouldn't let herself get deterred and her mother was such a loving mother that when she saw her daughter was re really wanted to do this, she said, I won't get in your way, but I won't help you either. You have to do it on your own. But she still saw that the only future for the Jewish people in Europe was uh, to leave. And so she started Hebrew on her own. She points out in her diary how more and more socializing seemed pointless with her friends, and really she was focused upon her future dream. Eventually, uh, that time came, she graduated high school, and she set off by boat to Palestine. And she uh, describes her first few days there, and the excitement and the passion, and then she went to agricultural school and started working the land. And these are some of her poems about working the land. Our people are working the black soil. Their arms reap the gold-bound sheaves. And now when the last ear its stalk leaves, our faces glitter as with golden oil. Those were her inspiring moments, but she did have moments of self-doubt. Why She was so well-educated and had aspirations, and yet here she was, a common farmer, doing communal chores. And yet at the same time, she realized that this was her weakness, which she needed to build up, and this is what the country needed, and she was ready to sacrifice for that. But then she had second doubts because of what was going on in Europe, and because of the Shoah, because of the Holocaust. And this is what she would say, well, another one of her poems, in the fires of war, in the flame in the flare, in the eye-blinding, searing glare, my little lantern I carry high to search, to search for true men. And we can see that she is wondering what is going, where is the world heading? And uh, after two years in agricultural school, she went off to go on kibbutz. Before doing so, she went from kibbutz to kibbutz to find the place where she felt she would fit in. And she wound up in kibbutz in Caesarea, and we will uh, later hear her most famous poem, A Walk Along the Beach in Caesarea. During this period, which now is two years after she left agricultural school, four years after she arrived in Palestine, so we're now in 1943, she starts to think again about Hungary. Uh, much of Europe has been overrun. Palestine is threatened, and she talks about feeling in danger uh, from the possible Nazi invasion of Palestine. And she's worried about her mother. 
So she's thinking about going back to Hungary to get her mother out and to help organize Jewish youth. In the meantime, she had joined the Haganah, which was a Jewish defense force, and, and then the Palmach, which was their special strike force, of course, clandestine to the British. And she was approached by one of, the, uh, one of her commanders, and he had a special proposition for her. And he said that they were forming a special brigade that would be parachuted behind, back into Europe, behind enemy lines, and would go to disrupt Nazi war effort, and that they could also go to help their Jewish brethren. And she told him, she said, that's amazing, because that's what I had been thinking of myself. And so she joined the British Women's Auxiliary Air Force, and there she was recruited as a special operations executive. She was sent to, which means basically a spy. She was sent to Egypt for special training. And not only was she the only woman that the parachute trainers have ever met, but they noted how she had no fear, how fearless and how brave she was, while the others, and we have the letters from her, one of her colleagues, one of her fellow spies, Jewish spies, said how afraid he was each time she jumped, she was fearless and already stood out in her role. Now here I'd like to make on a little aside and talk about uh, how Jews re-entered the world stage, not just politically in Palestine, not just agriculturally and as workers, but even as soldiers and fighters. And the first effort was during the First World War when Joseph Trompledour and Zab Jabotinsky approached the British and said, we would like to form a force to help you, to fight for you in Palestine against the Turkish, against the Turks. At first they refused, and then they offered to form a support brigade, which was known as the Zion Mule Corps. They were sent to the Battle in Garibaldi to help uh, bring supplies to the soldiers and help bring water to the soldiers particularly. And under artillery fire, they showed bravery. And then finally, the British relented and allowed a legion of 5,000 soldiers to be formed. And the Jewish legion fought in the uh, Jordan Valley, pushing back the Turkish. A number of them died. A number of them died of malaria. And interesting how the Jordan Valley is now in the headlines with the talks of annexation. So that was the first chapter. The second chapter happened in World War II, and there are many stories of Jews who fled, uh, uh, who fled Europe, who wound up in America. I know a few personally who joined the American army and fought against the Nazis. My mother in England, as a teenager, went to nursing school and helped patch up a Royal Air Force fighter pilots who came back injured. And uh, Jews in Palestine helped the British war effort. A special group from the Irgun were sent to Iraq to bomb some of the infrastructure that the Germans were taking over. And David Raviv, one of the leaders of the Irgun, was killed there. But the largest story was with the formation of the Jewish Brigade. Already in 1941-42, they made a request to the Allies to help fight 
And the sad irony of this is that in World War I and World War II, we fought on behalf of the Allies, and yet politically, it did not make the British any warmer towards us. Whereas uh, the Mufti of Jerusalem was off in Berlin plotting and egging on uh, the Nazis. So, but still, the Jews volunteered. Finally, in 1944, Churchill relented and allowed it. And a unit of 5,000 fighters was formed. They participated in the Italian offensive to retake Europe and, uh, and fought valiantly. After the war, they formed the Tuchas Titzig Geschäfte, TTG, which you could translate as the Butt Kickers Corporation. And they clandestinely helped survivors get to Palestine, which, of course, the British were trying to stop. Uh, their British uniforms and papers and vehicles certainly helped in that, those efforts. Uh, formally, they were helping displaced persons and survivors, but clandestinely, they're helping them get to Palestine. And the TTG, the Tochus Kickers, uh, uh, formed the Nakama Group, which were vengeance brigades who hunted down and killed Nazis. And it's not known how many were hunted down. Some estimates put it as 1,500 Nazis might have been hunted down by these brigades and summarily judged and executed. So she was part of this demonstration on the part of Jews that we are ready to put our lives on the line to fight for our Jewish brethren, to fight against the Nazis. And by the time she went, the Nazi danger to Palestine no longer was so great, and yet she insisted on going. So in 1944, she parried into Yugoslavia and then was meant to make her way to Hungary. She parachuted in with two colleagues. There were 36 in all in this brigade. 13 of them parachuted in. She went with a group of three. And while they were in Yugoslavia, the Germans went and invaded Hungary. And, of course, Hungary was the last chapter in the war. We'll talk about the deportations from Hungary, which also were the last of the war. And so now it would be much more dangerous for her to cross the border from Yugoslavia into Hungary. In Yugoslavia, they fought with the partisans. They encountered battles. They had to live clandestinely, marching 48 hours straight in the rain um, under very brutal, harsh conditions. Uh, but they were not to be deterred. Now, she, once again, showed her qualities of leadership. The, their mission, really, was complicated because for the British, their primary mission was to fight the Nazis with the partisans. But their, uh, the British agreed to their mission of helping the Jews as well. And the partisans also really were only interested in fighting the Nazis, not helping Jews. And so there was some distrust. There were times where she had to stand up to them, and uh, she did that. And her comrade, her colleague, said she became the leader of the group. So they were reluctant to cross the border. She insisted, and so they split up in order to cross. At that point, this is in, uh, in mid-1944. 
So she joined, joined up with three other partisans who were going into Hungary, two Jews and one non-Jewish Frenchman who wanted to help the Jews. And they successfully crossed the border. But when they got to the next town, uh, two of them went in to jo join up with fellow partisans. They were questioned by the gendarme. One of them panicked and shot himself. When the word got out, the farmers told the Germans that there were two others that they saw. They were surrounded and captured. And on Hannah was found the transmitter, which she was to use to communicate uh, information to the British. And she was thrown in prison and told to, that she had to tell the names of her fellow spies and to give them the transmission codes. The only information she would divulge was her name. And tragically, she was tortured under terrible, terrible conditions. These were Nazis torturing her. And we won't get into details, but her bravery in each stage, learning how to parachute, joining the partisans, insisting on crossing the border, continued here, and she stood up to her torturers, was thrown in prison for six weeks. And in prison, she also then started to make efforts to, uh, to help to raise morale with the other prisoners. She devised a system of communicating with them by finding something shiny to uh, bounce the sun uh, and use code. She wrote out letters onto a sheet in large letters and communicated with them and eventually tapping on the walls as well, giving them hope, saying we have to continue the fight even here in prison. And uh, the political uh, situation in Hungary was such that by this time, the Iron Cross, the pro-Nazi government had taken over in Hungary. Until then, the government was more neutral and even had tried in some instances to, uh, to protect the Jews, but now it was all over. And at this point, her mother reached out to the special envoy sent by the Jews in Palestine, by the Jewish leadership in Palestine, as part of the Aid and Rescue Committee to help save Jews. And the name of this person who headed it in Budapest was Kurt, uh, was, excuse me, um, Rudolf Kastner. And Rudolf Kastner would go on to become an extremely controversial figure. And what her mother said after the war was that it's not even, it's not that you didn't free my daughter. It's that you didn't even make any efforts to do so. Now, many speculated that the British wouldn't have looked kindly upon this because she was a British spy and uh, had been caught and they didn't want to accentuate that. Um, but there were other stories around Kastner as well. And what her mother said is that he never returned her calls. She went in to see the secretary. He flat out avoided her. And then his aides suggested to the mother that she not get a lawyer to defend her daughter. Remember, these are the Hungarian courts, not the Nazi courts. And they still had some scruples about justice and also were afraid of the consequences after the war if they didn't have due process. So the Kastner story was that after the war, a Jew named Greenwald 
accused Kastner of conspiring with the Nazis. And it went to trial. The Mapai government sued Kastner for libel, sued uh, Greenwald for libel against Kastner. And so in the trial, all of this evidence came out. So what were Kastner's efforts? In the three months in spring, Hungarian Jewry, 500, over 500,000 Jews were liquidated in the death camps, particularly most of them in Auschwitz. Of these, Kastner's efforts brought one train of 1,600 souls. Now, Kastner was traveling into Germany. He was in close contact with Kurt Becher, who was the chief of all the concentration camps, and by this time was the head of the economic uh, oversight in Hungary, which basically meant he oversaw stealing Jewish property, even to the point of pulling out uh, gold from Jewish tooths. So he was uh, very controversial. He was negotiating with Rudolf Eichmann. And the one train that he brought out of 1,600 people had 1,400 people from his small hometown of 20,000, 150 notables who paid for their spots. So approximately, not quite half the train was kind of special tickets. The other source of controversy with uh, Kastner, and there were a number, but here's another one, which was that after the war, he went and he testified at the Nuremberg trials and gave a, uh, a affidavit for Kurt Becher, saying that he had helped uh, save Jews and should be released. He denied it in court and later was uh, convicted of being uh, of perjury for lying because the document, the letter he wrote in favor of Becher's release was found. And uh, in the trial, where the government accused Greenwald of, uh, of, uh, per of perjuring, of uh, defaming Kastner, Kastner was, uh, Greenwald was not only found uh, innocent of perjury, but Kastner was found guilty. What the judge said was that Kastner had sold his soul to the devil, to the Nazis under the guise and probably beginning, starting out with good intentions of wanting to help save Hungarian Jewry. But Kastner knew about the death camps. He knew about the thousands a day being deported to Auschwitz, and he said nothing to the Jews there. Now, the Germans, of course, had told him not to because they said it would be worse for the Jews because they would panic and more would get killed, but he knew the truth that they would die eventually anyway. And I myself heard firsthand Elie Wiesel speaking, saying that even though they listened to the BBC radio, and even though this was 1944, he said, we did not know about the death camps. We didn't know we were being deported to the death camps. Now, maybe some in Budapest did, maybe some later, uh, on the later deportations did. But at the beginning, they didn't, and Catherine did not tell them. Now... Um, the aftermath was 
that the government appealed the ruling against Kastner and uh, the prime minister was voted out of office as a result of this controversy for them trying to appeal it. Two years later, the Supreme Court did overrule the ruling against Kastner and exonerated him, but they said, nevertheless, he was found guilty of, he was guilty of perjury, of saying he never tried to protect Becher in the Nuremberg trials. So it was a very ugly chapter in Jewish history. You can read uh, the book by Ben Hecht called Perfidy, which goes into detail about it, which is an account of the trials and of Hecht's take on it. Um, but Hannah Shanish was in the middle of this because her mother appealed to Kastner to help her in some way, and nothing was done. So there was a trial. The judges deferred her ruling for eight days. The Russians were manning their counteroffensive. They were not far from Budapest. There was hope that uh, she would ride it out and the Russians would come in. But then, without any announcement, without even giving her her last rights or uh, allowing her to see any family members, which was usually done in Hungary, Hungarian law, she was taken in the middle of the night and executed and died in prison in Hungary. Uh, one of the Kadoshim, one of those who gave their life for the Jewish people. Her body was moved to Israel in 1950. And in 1983, the Hungarian government exonerated her. So here we have the poignant story of a young girl at 23 years old, while at uh, 19 years old, making Aliyah, leaving Hungary, being part of the Zionist dream, working on kibbutz, volunteering to parachute behind enemy lines to go re-infiltrate into Hungary to help Hungarian Jewry, their escape, when she was captured by the Germans and executed. And her story captures the heart, in a sense, it's almost the opposite of the Anne Frank story. It's uh, the Jew who died, but died heroically fighting against the Nazis. Died having made Aliyah to Israel and fulfilled her dream. And I leave you with her last and most famous poem, a walk to Caesarea. My God, my God, I pray that these things never end. The sand in the sea, the rustle of the waters, lightning upon the heavens, and the prayer of man. And here is the rendition in Hebrew by uh, the composer, David Zahavi, very famous rendition of this beautiful, chilling poem.
Have a good evening, everyone. This is the Jewish Matters Podcast. Tune in on Sunday, where we continue our Jewish spirituality series, and we will be talking about um, finding our life purpose. Anishanish certainly did. And uh, part three, and we'll be talking about uh, a Jewish approach towards uh, professional uh towards uh, towards uh, finding a profession and towards work and uh, personal and work balance. And next Wednesday, tune in as well, where we'll be talking about um, the famous Prime Minister, uh, Yitzhak Rabin. So, have a good evening, everyone.